You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The thing about privacy is that once you give it away, it's a very, very difficult thing to get back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. This episode is for September 9th, 2020. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I look at one state's plan to provide internet to rural students. Ben describes a controversial move by California lawmakers to implement immunity passports. And later in the show, my conversation with Matt Lewis and Jennifer Furnick. They're researchers from NCC Group, and they recently published a report titled Smart Cities, Weighing the Benefits Against the Dangers. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, let's kick things off with some uh, stories here. Ben, why don't you start it off for us? Sure. So my article is actually a position paper slash op-ed from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's about a piece of legislation under consideration at the California General Assembly, the California uh, State Legislature. Hmm. And this would be a proposal to have a pilot program for so-called immunity passports, which would be a verified health credential that shows the results of somebody's negative COVID-19 test, which would allow that person to get into certain public places, be they employment, airports, etc. Hmm. Uh, it could also potentially show that that person would be immune from COVID-19. So if you've had like an antibody body test, you could prove that person at least theoretically, would not be subject to infection. And they would do this pilot program using blockchain technology, which is one of the more controversial facets of this potential idea. Because obviously, you'd be creating some sort of permanent record for a result that's not necessarily permanent, given our current understanding of how the virus works. So this bill would empower the California Department of Consumer Affairs to authorize healthcare providers to issue verifiable health credentials. It would set up a sort of oversight committee on these activities, which would feature groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, ACLU, to make sure that people's civil liberties weren't being violated. And then it would gradually start a process where this type of program would become more ubiquitous. You'd try it out in very limited circumstances at first, and if the program were successful, it's something that you could expand. 
So you can certainly understand the rationale behind uh, these type of immunity passports. You know, we're getting to the point in some jurisdictions where up to 20% of people, according to the best estimates, have had COVID-19, meaning at least theoretically they've developed antibodies and are immune to the virus. And perhaps mm-hmm. those people, the theory goes, should be able to go back to work, get on a plane, et cetera. Uh, uh, but there are several problems here, uh, as there always are with with bills like this. <laughs> I'm no doctor, but on the medical side, I think the evidence that somebody who has developed antibodies definitively cannot transmit that virus is mixed at best. I just don't think right. we have enough information about that. Uh, and because we're so unsure about it, it doesn't make sense to use this type of blockchain technology. That's one of the key arguments of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The other thing is... Do we really want to be getting into a situation where you have to unlock your smartphones and present credentials to get into public buildings and public spaces? Your papers, please. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It may seem completely innocuous when we're talking about uh, an immunity passport. That might seem to make sense to us. But there is always a slippery slope, you know. This harkens back, as you say, to an Arizona bill, Senate Bill 1070, probably 10 years ago now which was the show us your immigration papers bill. Uh, Mm. So you could see, you know, another state, maybe not as progressive as California, saying, well, as long as we're asking people questions so that they can enter a facility, how about we expand that to your immigration status or other, Mm. you know, personal information that might prevent you from getting some sort of public services? And again, this is uh, something that would potentially apply to government buildings. So if you needed to go and apply for disability benefits, Social Security you could potentially be forced to unlock your device and at least be at risk of transmitting pretty crucial information. So this bill has not been passed. It's stuck at the California General Assembly. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation has teamed up with a bunch of other civil liberties groups and private industry like Mozilla to oppose this piece of legislation. And they're encouraging people who disagree with this idea to contact their state legislators if you live in California. Hmm. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind with this. One is, uh, you know, for example, here in Maryland, where you and I live, and of course, California is your home state, but yeah. uh, I don't. I try not to hold that against you. I know. Um, here in Maryland, where we both live, to send our kids to school, we have to provide proof of certain immunizations. How is this different from that? So a couple of things. One, the data on immunizations is more robust than it is on COVID, just because COVID is such a new disease. Mm. If you've had an immunization for measles, mumps, and rubella, we know with some level of scientific certainty that that person is going to be immune. Uh, The other crucial piece of information is you're not unlocking your device. So, you know... Either you submit those as electronic records, you know, you just send a PDF via email to your your institution or drop it into a database, or, you know, you're printing out paper records and and bringing them in. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple problems that are introduced by requiring a device. Uh, The first, as we talked about, are some of the privacy concerns. Forcing somebody in real time to unlock their device to enter a public facility, the show me your, I'll show you my iPhone if you show me your iPhone type of thing. Yeah. Uh, And there are major accessibility problems. Not everybody has a smartphone. You could develop workarounds where people who potentially are older or from uh, different socioeconomic groups could present these immunity credentials in a different way, you know, say by printing out records. But that creates like a driver's license. Yeah, that, you know, could create 
its own security concerns. It would be more because, you know, a type of immunity passport, the system is so new, uh, it could potentially allow people to game the system and print out false records, especially when we're talking about a pilot program, something that just has not yet been established. So that would potentially present some security concerns. So I think what the EFF is saying is you have to kind of go back to the drawing board here. We're not ready to do this because we're not ready to relinquish our privacy on our own devices, something that's been guaranteed to us. And we just don't have enough information on the disease itself where such an invasion of privacy would be justified. Perhaps if we were 100% sure that antibodies could allow somebody to claim absolute immunity from COVID, maybe it would be worth it. You know, Maybe we would accept that invasion of privacy, but we are not there yet. Uh, mm-hmm. The World Health Organization says we are not there yet. So until we are there, uh, at least in the view of these groups, it's just not appropriate to test out this kind of program and take hmm. on those privacy risks. Yeah. All right. Interesting development for sure. Well, my story this week, uh, this comes from the Baltimore Sun. It's an article written by Lillian Reed, and it's titled, Maryland has a plan to beam internet to rural students, but officials say it won't be ready until next year. This caught my eye uh, for a couple of reasons. I think it's an interesting policy discussion about providing internet to people and how much of that should be private and how much of that should be public and what the options are for providing internet to those who are underserved. And I think certainly the pandemic has shown a bright light on the fact that high-speed internet is really necessary for students right now who are trying to learn from home it's much harder for them to do that if they can't have access to high-speed internet. And the fact of the matter is that many students don't have high-speed internet. This article points out that here in Maryland, they estimate that 324,000 rural Marylanders don't have high-speed internet. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of kids. Yeah, you know, we think of Maryland as America in miniature. There are a lot of rural areas in our state uh, on Mm -hmm. the eastern shore and in western Maryland. And that's, you know, that's a pretty hefty amount of people. I have a couple issues on the way that this is framed. So there are a lot of people who don't live in rural areas uh, who, you know, people who live in, say, Baltimore City, who for various reasons also don't have access uh, to high-speed internet. And we've tried to develop some patches to fix those accessibility problems during the pandemic. Not all of those have been successful. So things like setting up uh, hotspots at the public schools themselves. Right, right. This article talks about uh, some districts have equipped school buses with Wi-Fi hotspots. And so the school buses will go to underserved communities and basically provide internet from the bus. Yeah, absolutely. And you can do that in big cities because, and I think this is a point you were getting at, it is profitable for you know private companies like AT&T and Verizon to put up a whole bunch of cell towers and create a very robust wireless network within Baltimore City, the major suburbs, the D.C. metropolitan area. Are they really going to invest those resources in Garrett County, which is on the far western part of our state, where the population, frankly, isn't that large? Uh, You know, you're going to find a lot of dead zones there because it's just not that profitable to create a robust wireless network out there. And I Mm -hmm. think that's why the state feels that it has to step in. It's going to gain access to this wireless spectrum, and it's going to go in where the private sector has not and create 
potentially wireless internet for a lot of these uh, rural residents. So you're right. I mean, I think this is one of those market failures that needs correcting as it applies to rural residents, just because it's not really worth it for these private enterprises to invest in those communities. There just aren't that many people there. Yeah. Just as an aside, if you're interested in some of the tech stuff here, go on YouTube and search for the word WISP, which stands for Wireless ISP. You'll see there's a lot of people who are entrepreneurial who have started up these wireless internet service providers for underserved areas. And it's really not that hard or that expensive to do. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole with that over the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> looking at some of these videos just because it's it's interesting to me. And but, you're the one um, who calls me a nerd all the time. <laughs> well, you're a law nerd. I'm just I a know. nerd. We're, nerd. Different, we're different kinds of nerds. <laughs> That's right. What I learned, though, is that this is practical and it seems like a good uh, way to do this. Doing this thing, these sorts of things wireless, is much less expensive than installing cables and installing fiber, that sort of infrastructure to have to dig ditches and run cables and and hook up connections to homes costs a lot more money, takes a lot more time. So if they can do it wirelessly, that's the way to go. This program they're talking about, they're getting some uh, federal money to support them. They have $15 million from uh, COVID-19 relief funds, and they are going to be, it says they have about $5 million set aside for more urban areas like Baltimore City. But I think your point is a good one that it's interesting to me just kind of knowing how the politics of Maryland works with our current governor and the kind of uh, love-hate relationship he seems to have with Baltimore City that, to say the least, that uh, we'd be targeting, not to get too local here, folks, with our politics, but that this would be targeting the rural areas first, Mm, raises perhaps some eyebrows. But um, let's be honest. I mean, our governor... Um, He's somebody who's extremely popular in our state, uh, has been Mm -hmm. widely praised on the work he's done on COVID. His political base is in a lot of these rural areas, some suburban areas. But, you know, if you look at the vote percentage he got in Garrett County, you know, we're probably exceeding 80 percent of the vote there. Right. Um, So, you know, I think it is reasonable to acknowledge that this is his political base. Yeah. The other component of this that that I think is worth discussing is this notion of, high-speed internet as critical infrastructure and the ability for folks to access it. For example, even in areas where you and I live, where there's ready uh, access to these sorts of things, you know, we basically have two main providers here. We have, in my neighborhood, we have Comcast and uh, Verizon. So you can get Fios or you can get, uh, what do they call it, Xfinity. Capitalism Um, at its finest. We have two choices. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right, exactly. And boy, it's amazing how similar their pricing structures are, isn't it? Sure is. Sure is. (laughs) So, um, but at least you have some choices. And one of the things that they offer are inexpensive connections for people who have financial difficulties. If you can demonstrate that you're below a certain income level, uh, you can get internet for, I want to say, around $10 a month. Uh, for something that I would not consider high speed, but it's something. What I wonder is, should communities be providing a basic level of connectivity for free? And what I'm thinking is, you know, for example, if you if you're a student and you qualify for free and reduced lunch, maybe that should also qualify you for this kind of internet. Maybe at that point, 
either the government kicks in and pays those service providers the $10 a month, or perhaps there's a wireless solution like this. We've got innovative things like, you know, Elon Musk is installing this array of satellites that could be a, a disruptive force for people to have access. 5G is going to make high-speed internet more accessible because, again, it doesn't require the wiring installation. Mm -hmm. So I think there are, there are possibilities here, but I'm curious, Ben, what you think about just from a policy point of view of where we, where we stand, what we should be thinking in terms of access to the internet as being a basic fundamental, dare I say, human right? Yeah. I mean, I'm always careful about using the, that human rights language because once you declare something a human right, you know, it really does create an obligation that you have to provide for it. And the mm. way our system works, we have a lot of negative rights in our country. You know, the government cannot do X to us, but very I few see. affirmative positive rights. Um, yeah. I happen to agree that one of the positive rights we do have in the state of Maryland is the right to a public education. You can go to, to school for free here. I don't know if you're aware of that, Dave. <laughs> you can enroll your child. It does not cost anything to go to one of Maryland's public schools, which are, you know, while they have equity issues, are among some of the best in the country. If, you know, we're in a situation like we are now where people cannot physically go to their schools and cannot learn in person, the only way they're going to, you know, not get very far behind in educational attainment is to have this internet access. So you mm. can't have that right to a public education right now without some sort of guaranteed access to high-speed internet technology. I mean, I just think that's the practical reality here. What's unfortunate is this technology for rural students in Maryland isn't going to be ready until fall 2021. Who knows whether the pandemic will be over by then? I sure hope it is. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there are no guarantees. But, you know, as sad as it is, there are going to be situations like this in the future. There are going to be other pandemics. You know, I know in the, the I, I hate to keep talking about my home state of California, but there are a lot of other reasons people can't go to school for long periods of time. You know, we've seen devastating wildfires there. Right. So, right. you know, if, if it's part of your state's policy to provide free public education, that sort of right is going to be useless during these trying times if people don't have access to Internet technology. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, that that right is really meaningless because we're engaged in virtual learning. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that I think there is good faith effort all around to try to provide for kids throughout this. Absolutely. You know, there are, school districts are handing out MiFi devices for connectivity. They're handing out, you know, laptops, uh, Chromebooks, you know, those kinds of things. So there is a, a rallying of the troops, if you will, to try to, to do their best. But, you know, there's... <laughs> The money doesn't grow on trees, and um, and and this points out, particularly in those rural areas, uh, you might not be within an, an area where it's easy to have access, and that that's an issue. It sure is. Yes, you know, I will say, money does not grow on trees. That is true in the state of Maryland and in all other states, which are required to have balanced budgets. The federal government is not meaning they could really step in, and if they decided that this was a priority to guarantee. Uh, high-speed rural internet access, that's something they could really invest in in a major way, just, you know, to an extent that the state of Maryland cannot do by itself without this allocation of, of federal dollars. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that is my story. Of course, we'll have links to all of our stories in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, uh, you can call us. It's 410-618-3720. You can leave a message there and maybe we'll use it on the air. Also, you can send us a message at caveat at the cyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Lewis and Jennifer Furnick. They are researchers for an organization called NCC Group. And they recently published a report titled Smart Cities, Weighing the Benefits Against the Dangers. Here's my conversation with Matt Lewis and Jennifer Furnick. From various conversations with our clients in recent years, we've We've seen that the topic of smart cities arise also in connection with a number of uh, hardware device manufacturers, IoT device manufacturers. We've seen them talk about the number of application areas around smart cities that they they plan on rolling their technologies out to. Uh, And so we started to engage with a few municipalities, local authorities, as they were starting to plan out their visions for their smart cities. And it became quickly apparent from our conversations that there was little to no thought around security, uh, around privacy aspects of what the intended smart city applications and visions were. And so that was the genesis for the white paper that we wrote, where we then set out to provide some guidance from the very early stages of what you're looking at, specking out what you're looking, trying to achieve, right through to the the development, the architecture, the design, the rollout, and the maintenance of smart cities, and how you can maximize the security assurance throughout that life cycle. Jennifer, can you give us some insights? I mean, these days when we're talking about smart cities, what's the, the spectrum of technologies that are typically at play here? So Matt could go into this in further depth, but we're looking at things like LoRaWAN. We're looking at um, a variety of IoT devices, usually on um, unregistered spectrums, a number of things that will exist perhaps on 5G infrastructure, but it really does vary somewhat deployment to deployment. Matt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. So I guess there's there's two main angles. There's the directly affecting privacy aspects around typically surveillance applications. So the big ones being things like facial recognition, automatic number plate recognition for vehicle tracking, that sort of thing. And that's been around for for many years and is not necessarily smart per se. But then the other side is 
the mass rollout of sensor-based networks that use technologies like Jennifer mentioned, such as LoRaWAN. And the sensors could be capturing anything from humidity, temperature, the conditions of the, the moisture in the soil around certain parks in the city. Uh, and, and the whole concept around smart cities then is aggregating all this information somewhere to generate some insights and some intelligence about that data to then be able to do some actions around that, whether it's optimizing services or uh, minimizing some level of environmental impact, that sort of thing. So the rollout of sensing devices around the city, I guess, is the overarching aspect of smart cities. And how do cities measure their return on investment with, with these sorts of things? How do they justify the expenses to the folks who live there? It'll depend on what the application is. So some applications might be explicitly set out to derive a return on investment. So, for example, uh, by gathering some intelligence about some service, they're able to then understand how they can optimize that service and therefore save money for the taxpayers and for citizens. Uh, So that might have been the intended goal from the outset. Other ones might be less so about, I guess, financial ROI, but it could be some other level of success around reduction in crime rates, for example. So there are applications such as gunshot detection that get rolled out on street lamps that claim to be able to detect if there's a gunshot in the area, and then it can automatically dial out for the police services. And then that can tie into the whole predictive policing aspect. And so if a city can then roll out those technologies and then track over time possible reduction in crime rates, that would be their measure of their return on investment. So it's a very specific uh, per application thing. And perhaps to extend further, um, we see a lot of kind of hybrid investment models, right? So we have to consider these different smart city experiments around the world where large private companies are buying up swaths of real estate or taking quasi-ownership of parts of a city um, and seeking to experiment in a real-life environment. So there become a lot of questions, especially from the privacy perspective, around who owns this data, who is responsible for the governance, to whom do they answer, who made this technology, where is the data going to live, what would happen in a mergers and acquisitions context, is this data being monetized? So there's a lot of questions around um, not just the financial costs from the outset within a municipality, but also the more indirect costs that occur in the monetization potentially of some of that data. Yeah, you know, we've we've been tracking here on this show, there have been stories coming out of San Diego about how some of their smart city efforts, uh, which were rolled out and and sold to the public for many of the, the reasons you've described here, uh, it didn't take long for the police to start using the system because some of the hardware mounted on streetlights, for example, had video and audio capture and, and recording capabilities. And so the police were able to use it for law enforcement. And, and this, of course, raised all sorts of privacy concerns. Yeah, I, w- I would expect that the privacy concerns are perhaps more vast than a lot of local citizens expect, given the data that is presented to them around Um, smart cities. And to me, it's like the concern that we ultimately have is that of ubiquitous surveillance and that of of realizing kind of the the panopticon vision of of these intelligent environments that have every type of sensor deployed ubiquitously around you, often undetectable, often unavoidable. And I think that as a society, we need to make the decisions as to what we will 
and will not accept with respect to privacy, and that we really need to consider as well the element of time. So there might be things that seem like a great idea and a very salient solution to a problem right now, but we also have to consider that uh, in the public sector, governments change and their policies change. And in the private sector, mergers and acquisitions happen. And I think that like what we really need to introspect before deploying these things widely is, like, am I okay with this level of surveillance with our current leadership in this given region? Um, what about if this region were led by someone of a very opposing political view in the future? Would we still be okay with this data being collected? You might want to also ask yourself, am I okay with a private company having this data? How much data do they have? What are the expectations on that? And what if they were bought out by a large insurance company or a large tech company, perhaps a large global tech company that's not from the region that they're deploying it? And I guess the thing about privacy is that once you give it away, it's a very, very difficult thing to get back. Yeah, and I guess just uh, just mention briefly on that point, we labored on this quite heavily early on in the report that we wrote around transparency and the need for local authorities to uh, establish some working groups uh, and engage with citizens from the outset. Um, I, I don't think many, if any, cities are doing this, but if you can establish those working groups where you get a nice cross-section of your population involved uh, and engaged around, okay, this is what we're looking to achieve and this these are the benefits to society and to citizens. These are the potential trade-offs around privacy, but we're at least we're having the open discussion rather than it being uh, opaque. And then we end up seeing the types of function creep, like the example in, in uh, San Diego that you just mentioned. What about the, the financial uh, issues for cities? Have any of them found that you know, perhaps these systems didn't end up being as good a deal as they thought? Maybe some of these partnerships with private organizations as they roll out, as they go over time, you know, I'm thinking of the long term impact of this? Many of these deals last for many years. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I suppose that there's a split camp on this in terms of who or what is driving the smart city application. So in that first instance, you might have the authority themselves having gone through a procurement stage and then outsourced to a provider. Or there could be just some digital disruptor who's come into a city and rolled out uh, whatever it is their application is without any governance or oversight by the city authorities themselves. So you could have both of those, uh, I guess, quite different models. So back on the, the local authority aspect, particularly where there is public money being spent, um, yeah, it, it is something that they do need to be cautious of. Um, there have been some examples of, um, for example, some cities rolling out things like smart parking infrastructure, where they have sensors that connect up to an application infrastructure so you can read on your app in real time where there are free parking spots around a city, but where that has gone wrong in terms of the, the rollout, it's then become a very costly exercise to actually go and dig up those sensors and fix whatever the underlying issue was and then put them back in and it's caused massive disruption. So there's, there's a big element of, I guess, planning and ensuring you get the most assurance you can possible from the supply chain before you commit to some of these large infrastructure projects, particularly where they are maybe retrofitting or having some sort of physical embedding into a city and the, and the city's, I guess, street furniture, as it were. What sort of uh, advice do you have? What's the message that you hope people get 
I'm thinking of that that involved citizen, that that active citizen who keeps an eye on their their local city or or county council in terms of the messaging that they should be taking to their representatives as these sorts of smart city uh, proposals come through. What sort of things should they be on the lookout for? There's the potential use, particularly, I guess, in the European region where we have the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. Um, There are specific provisions that allow citizens to uh, do things like subject access requests. uh, And things like that can help, I guess, hold municipalities or organizations to account. So you might request a copy of whatever data they might have on you, or you might do a freedom of information request about what technologies are being rolled out by which vendors and for what purposes. Uh, And so these these are very good tools to use, particularly when uh, it is about public bodies and public spending. Those are two key recommendations that I would have, and they certainly help hold to account because if there is no information back or the answers are a bit vague, that might then be a probe to citizens to then maybe seek some further assurances about what's actually being rolled out and for what reason. And I feel like bringing the community forward to talk about the types of data issues that they have from different populations' perspectives is really important here. If we think about the linkability of data and just the sheer volume of data points that become available, these are tremendously valuable things. They can become tremendously political things. If we think even right now, the world in which we live, perhaps there's been not a great deal of smart city adoption at scale and that the primary like mechanism of surveillance for everyday people tends to be social media. Even without a social media account across a variety of platforms, many social media companies have begun to profile people based on ambient data. We can only imagine what this would look like if your environment was always trying to sense something about you as you move through space. So I think that citizens need to think about what consent and opting out of consent looks like. I think they need to think about their specific use cases and where these data privacy issues may matter the most. We see this a lot with targeted populations. So what about survivors of domestic violence? What about members of public office? What about folks within various parts of the intelligence community or victims of doxing and harassment or journalists and their sources or witnesses to crimes? There's there's a great deal of people that have very specific interests that do need to be represented for this to be an equitable and positive thing for all. And really, we can't start making those privacy assurances without also being able to make security assurances, because in the absence of controlling the system that you have and having a high degree of assurance over that data, it's very difficult to make any kind of confident guarantee around how that data will be protected. So then, like to build upon this idea of linkability of data, I think that we need to think a lot about not just the confidentiality and the integrity of the data, but also the availability and what a stress test would look like if a smart city deployment were to lose network connectivity or lose access to the power grid or similar, and what might be the unintended consequences of that. Um, We also need to think about the vendors that we're working with. So while working with new and exciting startups can be a great way to bring innovation into this space, we also have to consider that a 12-person startup probably doesn't have a security team and maybe giving them all of your municipality's data to host within their own kind of cloud instance that they have not necessarily tested deeply or have robust assurances around could be a fair bit of risk. All right, Ben, what do you think? Smart cities sound so good in theory, 
Um, <laughs> Who wouldn't want a smarter city, right? <laughs> I know. And I was actually surprised that I think you pretty asked them pretty directly about a cost-benefit analysis and return uh-huh. on investment, you know, and they couldn't quite, <laughs> I guess, put the benefits directly in those terms, which is something that I think puzzled me a little bit. But yeah, you know, I think there's certainly a lot of promise. You can improve public services, you can improve public safety, but you have to weigh that against significant dangers. As you said in the interview, and I think, uh, you know, as we've talked about, we already have examples in cities like San Diego where you've set up aerial surveillance, license plate readers, all different types of rather invasive technology And it threatens people's rights, even if it does provide them benefits. I think this paper is a good start because I think we have to kind of develop some universal standards here. At what point is it worth it to deploy this technology, given the risks and the benefits? And at what point is it not? I certainly support the promise of smart cities. But anytime I hear smart anything, I just kind of cringe a little bit because it just (laughs) sounds kind of Orwellian. I don't know if if you feel the same way. Uh, uh, I see where you're coming from. (laughs) All right. Well, our thanks to Matt Lewis and uh, Jennifer Fernick for joining us. We do appreciate them taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. Of course, we want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.